G'day, my name's Martin Murray and you're listening to the In The Paddock podcast, where we talk all things farming. Just jumping in before the podcast here to let you know that it's finally dry enough for me to actually sow something, so I'm flat out on the tractor, getting my wheat in the ground and getting my pre-emergence on. So a few of you are probably thinking about what to do next summer or you're just that sick of the rain, you're thinking, bugger it, let's sow it all to pasture and just run cows. So that's why we're running a repeat of my interview with Bob Freeburn on subtropical pastures. Enjoy. Today we're talking subtropical grasses with Bob Freeburn. Bob Freeburn is a farmer and consultant from Coonabarabran in New South Wales, specialising in subtropical grasses and the legumes that go with them. He started out his career in the DPI, where he spent many years studying various subtropical pastures and the legumes that go with them, such as Cerradella and Subclover. It's a fascinating talk, and we take a deep look into what makes a subtropical pasture. It's a fascinating conversation where we look at what is a subtropical grass, what climates they prefer, what soils they prefer, type of production you can expect, the way to set up for them, the way to grow them, the way to sell them. We'll also talk a little bit about management and the life expectancy. It was a great conversation and a real privilege to be able to spend the time with Bob at his farm, looking at his place and how he manages it. I'm sure you'll get something out of this podcast. So today I'm here with Bob Freeburn. Uh, we're recording live from the veranda outside his farm here at Coonabarabran. And I'll just get you to start a bit, Bob, by just telling us a bit about yourself bit about your farm and a bit about your background. Yeah, well, Martin, our property is um, about 700 acres um, in a 25-inch rainfall zone east of Coonabarabran. Um, we basically have owned it for nearly 11 years. We now have almost 50% of it to tropical grass, 20% to winter forage crops like oats, and 30% improved native grass. So the tropical grass also has winter legumes like cerradella and subclover through them. And we're fairly conservative stockers, but we basically aim to run about 200 steers, um, buying them about 230, 250 kilos and selling them about 500 and turning over once a year, sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less depending on the seasons, Martin. Uh, my background, well, I was with Department of Ag for 40-odd years and I've been a ag consultant now for nearly 15 years. Um, so that keeps us busy. Yeah, it sounds like you got a bit on your table. Yeah, well, I think farming is good, um, provided you run it properly. And uh, even in these drought years, we've been able to make positive gross margins, although much reduced on a good year, of course. Yeah, right, well, that's good. That's good. <laughs> Um, so I guess the thing you're most renowned for is subtropicals and uh, the legumes that go with it and your work in that space. Can you give us a bit of a background on subtropical grasses, what they are, what sort of climates they like, the soils they like, uh, all that sort of thing? Well, tropical grasses really are just, for most environments, most soil types in New South Wales are just far more productive, summer-active grasses. I mean, your natives like redgrass, Queensland bluegrass, they grow the same cycle, but they slow down much earlier in the autumn and they're much slower starting in the spring. So, for example, premier digit grass, this last March, we cut 
6.2 tonnes per hectare dry matter off hay. Just shows you how productive they can be, whereas native grasses at that same time would have been about a third, maybe up to a half of that. So far more productive. Um, and I guess when you look at the rainfall across New South Wales, from Parks, Tomingley, North, it's more summer rainfall than winter rainfall. But around Parks, it's half and half. And even when you get to Wagga, you're still getting significant summer rain. Uh, tropicals, I believe, have a role pretty well everywhere in New South Wales, coastal, tablelands. And there are quite a few tabling guys that have been successfully growing tropicals now for a number of years. Um, and slopes, they'll grow successfully into environments like Ningen, uh, Kondoblin. Um, they're pretty tough, but I believe um, they're not your full pasture base, but they supply feed from early spring right through to the end of autumn. Uh, and then if you can grow them with a winter legume, which we do and we advocate, like subclover, cerradella and the like, you've actually got a pasture that can respond to rain whenever it, whenever it occurs. So tablelands is an interesting one. I've, I've never really considered subtropicals in that environment, just given that it's a fairly cold environment. I've got in-laws at Gyra and um, I steer clear over winter. <laughs> it's, um, do you find the production up there is significantly reduced because of that cold environment? or You have a longer dormancy period, um, but they'll still... For example, there's a really good DPI trial at Orange and it has grown quite well, well into May. It depends on and when you start to get your severe frosts. But if you're only getting light frosts in April, May, you'll get a burn, but you can get regrowth. And whether it's climate change or climate variability, we tend to be, be for the last few years, having a run of warmer winters which means tropical grasses have a shorter dormancy period. But my logic is that if you're, if you're sowing it at, say, 900, 1,000 metres above sea level, yes, it's going to be a longer dormancy period, but that allow, that's, allows the winter legume to, to fill that more successfully than it would in a warmer environment. So to me, there's plenty of evidence of long-term persistence in tablelands environments, a lot of the native grasses in tablelands are varieties, species like red grass, and they're really just mirroring them for the production cycle, but they're a lot more productive. Yeah, right. Eh? And uh, what, what about soils? Um, there's a fair range in soils from, well, just, just even in a single district, even on a farm, you can have a fair range in soil types. Uh, yeah, ranging from acidic sands to heavy black clays. Yep. Yep. Do you find there's a grass there for any environment? There is. There is, Martin. Um, I guess the initial interest in tropicals was more in the lighter soils because there's less um, use of them for, for cropping because they can't hold enough water. Um, so I guess our early searches for tropical grasses tended to focus more in the lighter country and we've got species like Premier Digit and Consul Lovegrass are really long-term persistent, very productive, provided you run them well, on acid, light country. On the heavier country, you've got Premier Digit tends to overlap into pretty well 
most soil types, including heavy black. Um, this good stands of Premier Digit on heavy black in this part of the world. But species like Premier, uh, like Bambatsi Panic, also, and in the northwestern environments, Mitchell grass, which actually is a native, but it's hard to beat and, and worth putting in your mixture on the heavier country in northwestern type environments. So, yeah, and there are other species that have useful roles, but to me, those species tend to be the bread and butter ones. Yeah, well, one of the things, um, I, I live and work around Armatree and Galagan Bone's got some fairly hard sodic soils and one of the things we've done there was not having a lot of success with cropping other than barley in that sort of environment, just put it down to Bambatsi exactly, Panic and exactly. it's, it's been going really well. Yeah, I've seen um, Bambatsi stands that are 15, 20 years old, um, northwest of Glargenbone, that um, totally turn turn the country on its head. If you're growing wheat, you're going to need to use gypsum or such every five years or so. Once you've got a good tropical grass growing in it, it forms its own organic matter base and there's no need for regular um, treatments with with um, with gypsum or other products. Yeah, yeah, no, and it's just it's super productive. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, in fact, I had one bloke complaining to me he couldn't get a clean muster in a thirty odd hectare paddock. It well, was... that's right. You lose all your shit. We sometimes have trouble finding our cattle. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, I, I guess we've sort of talked about how you can sort of renovate some of that, that harder country, that harder to produce country that you, you find in um, whether you're a cropping operation mainly or a livestock operation. Wh- where do you find they fit and how do you, have you incorporated subs into your farm? Well, basically, I think it's a key issue. Think about it and plan it. Although they're tough, long-lasting plants once well-established, they're bits of sooks in the establishment phase. So you don't want weeds. And often the weed is is another grass, an annual grass. So our normal policy is to crop it for two, preferably three years, religiously sit, sit on any summer herbage with herbicide. And after the... So we'll crop it with oats or winter weed or brassica for three consecutive years. Treat the fallows just like your professional wheat farmers or, or any croppers do. Um, every time it rains, you, you, you spray weeds. Um, so after three complete kills of weeds over summer, you've got virtually a zero weed population. So you, you sow your tropical grass after the last winter crop. Probably you spray it out about the end of um, July, early August, about the time we're doing this interview. Um, and then come late October, regardless of seasonal conditions, we'll just sow it shallow so it dry and that's what happened in this past year it was drought when we sowed in early november and it didn't germinate till rain in january but it sat there um whereas if i if you waited for the rain and then sowed you've still got to wait for the next rain to get it get it to germinate in in most parts um of new south wales there's a pretty high probability you're going to get a rain over that november december january february March period to get a good establishment. So good weed control, shallow sowing, early sowing, I believe are, are three important parts of success. And when you say shallow, how shallow are we talking? Well, cause... basically, 
you want it almost on the surface or even a little bit on the surface down no more than a, a centimetre. And particularly if you're using press wheels, which we do, you've got a little bit of a groove. If, you, if you'd sown, say, at two centimetres and then you get a storm and it melts over the row, you, you've got it too, too much soil above a very small seed that's got to get through that. Yeah, I mean, with the stuff we've been doing, effectively what we do is we just scratch the surface with the tine yep. and almost just press it with the press yep. wheel, press yep. the seed into yep. the dirt. Yeah, yep. I think shallow sowing is a key. We see a lot of stands that people have sown too deep and, you know, after good rains, they're complaining about poor germination. And more times than not, it's because the seed was sown too deep. And what about starter fertiliser? Um I look good soil fertility is clearly important for a strong seedling establishment. But if your paddock's reasonable soil fertility because you've been using fair fertilizer in your cropping cycle, um, we tend to just use fertilizer as a carrier with the seed. Maybe we'll use, depending on sulfur levels, we might use if the sulfur levels are good, we might just use DEAP at 40, 50 kgs per hectare. Once it's well established, then we might way up whether we hit it with a bit of urea or um, whatever from then on. Yeah, right. Eh? Yeah, so what sort of production do you do you tend to find you get out of your subtropicals? Are we talking stocking rates, kilos per hectare or weight gains, kilos per day, or whatever your unit of measure is? Yeah, I, I guess stocking rates, put it this way, our property is a light, predominantly light acid soil, unimproved, it would barely run 2 DS, DC per hectare and they'd have to be weathers or, or, or just breeding and selling as weaners. Um, it's a fattening property now and we're running about 7 or 8 DCs per hectare. Um, we'll go higher, we'll go lower depending on seasonal conditions. So it's turned tropical grasses are a key of that, but so is the winter legumes and so is good uh, winter forage crop. But Martin, I guess they all have their key role. It's trying to have a good feed base through the year whenever it rains. Um, Production-wise, well, we, as I said earlier, I think we've, we cut hay this last summer in, in March that went 6.2 tonnes per hectare dry matter. Good quality hay. Um, and coming from nothing when the drought broke, that was a sort of a very short period, you know, growing it up to 140 kgs dry matter a day. So you, a good year you might get 15 tonnes per hectare dry matter. Um, a tougher year might be somewhere between five and eight. Um, but the, the, the beauty about it is it'll, it'll go from sort of... Um, depending on how cold your environment from that sort of mid-spring right through to the end of autumn period. Yeah, right. Eh? That's fairly good. Um, so, as you said there, you, you're trying to effectively have an even growth curve throughout the year, I guess, is what you're trying to achieve on your farm uh, between your oats, your subtropicals and uh, your native grass and your, your legumes. Would that be correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So tropical grasses are going to be the majority of feed through summer, early to mid-autumn. 
Um, the winter legumes, you know, the last three years leading up to 2020, they didn't produce much at all, but a year like this, they're producing really good feed now in middle of winter, and they'll do that right through to well into spring, and they'll supply nitrogen for the tropical grass. And the oats, I guess, growing it on fallow, um, you're almost guaranteeing reasonable to good winter feed. And we, I guess, our lighter country, you can sow oats on very low rainfall events. We were able to not run normal stock numbers, but run good stock numbers through the drought years. Um, I realise some areas were so bad they couldn't do that, but you don't need much. If you've got a bit of subsoil moisture, you don't need much to have reasonable winter forage production with a dual purpose crop like oats yep so yeah i guess that's our feed base it's trying to plus there'll be a tropical grass for example this last late summer was fantastic but the carryover feed value was great you know we were putting on a kilo of dry matter right into june per day on steers and we actually had bought some steers in November, on a bit of November rain, for about 250 kilos. We sold them um, about six weeks ago and they made us $900 a head and they were just on tropical grasses from purchase to sale. So, yeah, right. So the weight gains were good and the, and the quality's good. No, that's good. And so you've said a couple of times there you've got medics and clovers and legumes and Sarah Della in the mix. Can you tell us a bit more about them, what yeah. they are, their role, and yeah, how to well, establish them? Well, Martin, I mean, the lighter country in this part of the world is pH 4.2, 4.8, very acid. A lot of it even too acid for subclover. And you could say, well, why don't you put lime on it? Yes, that would fix the top 10 centimetres, but a lot of it's acid right down the profile. So we've gone for acid-tolerant legumes like sub Della, and by Cerula. And they're productive. Um, one big thing about Cerradella is it's also bloat-free. Um, it's lower phosphate requirement than subs um, and can, good aphid tolerance, very productive, provided it's carefully managed. So that, that's, that's our bread and butter light soil legume. Subclover, more the dominant annual legume on the more loamy, higher pH. We don't have much medic country on this part of the world. We'll grow a bit of bicerilla in the mixture and it's it's good acid soil tolerance, also pretty bloat-free. Uh, we'll put a bit of gland clover in the mixture, perhaps for the wetter parts of the country. Um, and there's a bit of arrow leaf in the mixture, but it doesn't hasn't shown to be a great contributor to date in this part of the world. Yeah, right. That's interesting. It's there. Yeah. We might well see it come through this spring. This is the sort of year hopefully will suit it. Yeah, nice soft spring should (laughs) hopefully make a lot of things grow. Um, So how how do you go about establishing them the past year? You say over-sowing them with a disc drill, spreading the seed? We we just spread it. Um, I know that's a bit rough and ready. It's better to disc drill or some way or other drill into it. would increase your probability of success but just top dressing it in I think with the new technology of Alaska granules for your for oh, your, your yep. I think increasingly as supply of hard seed becomes available that would be my prefer- 
preferential way of doing it. Do it in sort of late January, early February with your inoculum pellets um, and just leave it there and it'll be ready to germinate when the autumn breaks. Um, but once they're well established, they're probably there forever if you've got the right varieties for your environment and it's probably a mid-season variety like a vela in your tablelands areas and it's more King, uh, Santorini, Shinano in your slopes, plains type environments. Yeah, right. And you, you raise an interesting point there, the inoculation um, to ensure that good good nodulation. How do you manage that when you are spreading the seed? Well, the Alaska pellets, clay pellets, are unique. There's some good research in Western Australia and Belinda Hackney, New South Wales DPI, that that show that you can put that out with seed in January, February, and the rhizobia will live through till March, April, May, whenever the autumn break comes. You can't do that any other technique. The inoculum will die. Um, so, and that's a key part of a legume success. So, it, it's taken off almost universally across Western Australia. It's been slow to take off in New South Wales, probably because of distribution issues and. Um, and I think the it is a little bit dearer than conventional dear, inoculation, but, but, then, but then, uh, you're paying for a result. It, that's right, and it's there forever. Once you've got a successful establishment, bingo, you're right. So if are there any other methods, any other strategies to try and inoculate? Well, I, um, I, I think that's the simplest way. Um, um I guess another thing we haven't touched on is soil fertility. Like, I think it's very important that you monitor what your, particularly your phosphorus and sulphur levels are. If you don't address them, your pasture, whatever the species, is not going to be terribly successful. Um, and mostly light and heavy soils across New South Wales are low in sulphur unless addressed. And phosphorus, mostly light and medium soils, naturally they're low in phosphorus. Um, but if you're monitoring with soil testing, there's a lot of cases where phosphorus and sulphur has built up via previous fertiliser use. For example, we've saved top dressing our pasture country these last two years because soil tests have shown us our phosphorus and sulphur levels are above the cut-off um, critical areas. Yeah, I suppose that's an important thing. It is, um, it is. Yeah, uh, well, just soil testing in general. I mean, like a, it, it can be a struggle sometimes to get uh, cropping fellas to soil test their country, let alone uh, pasture fellas or people who are just running a bit of stock on the side of their cropping. Yeah, well, um, I, my view is you don't necessarily need to go and do every paddock and do three samples per paddock, but pick a few areas that you think are fairly typical um, that's what we do, and we make out we do that in January. It takes one or two weeks for the results to come back, and we'll make our decision and order our fertilizer based on that. Yeah, yeah, because as you say, you you don't know if you're cheating yourself. You're losing production yeah. from not having exactly well enough fertilized country, or yeah. Yeah. you're wasting money. As as you said, the last yeah. two years yeah. you haven't had a need. Yep, yeah. that's right. That's right. Which is probably actually a good segue into the last two years. Yeah, they yeah. haven't haven't been great years for most people. Well, I suppose we had a when we bought this property, we settled into a pretty, you know, we top dressed every year, and that's 
you know, there's good data showing that phosphorus and sulphur are the two key nutrients for pastures, sometimes a bit of MO. Um, they do build up quite dramatically. And um, um, to look at a property like this, pretty light country, and to say, oh, well, our phosphorus and sulphur levels are good is a pretty important thing. Yeah. And, and how have you found that the, the pastures have held up over the drought in the last two, three years? Well, that, that's a good question. Um because hard-seeded, right-maturity varieties for your environment are very important. Um, you've seen today plenty of density in our our legumes. And the, the Cerradella has seeded a little bit each year. The subclover hasn't, um, but it's still there because we principally we grow a early maturing hard-seeded variety, Dalkeith, which I think is as good as you can get for this part of the world. Yep. Um, and Cerradella is principally King and um, Elgara, which are good varieties for this part of the world. Yeah, right. And what about, um, just continue on the, the legumes, what about summer legumes? Do you find they've got to fit in with your subtropicals or do you feel you're better to split that production? Well, look, I'm, I'm, I think this new research and ongoing research sort of needing to sort that out. Potentially, there's a real role for a hard-seeded um, um, annual or biannual or triannual legume to grow with tropical grass. So I guess further north you go, that's even more important. I think the winter legumes are reliable enough in this part of the world to p- supply the nitrogen most years for our tropicals. Clearly, that hasn't happened three years up to this year. You can see how well the winter legumes have come back. But I think at this stage, I'm just looking with great interest the researchers and those experimenting with tropical legumes. Um, logically, you'd say they ought to fit into the system with your tropical grass. Yep. So if you're, say, Darling Downs, that type of area where it is pretty well yep. all summer rainfall, that's that's, right. that's yep. where you'd really want to yes, be chasing definitely. them. And yeah. even northern New South Wales, you know, above Narrabri, I think there's a real role for them there. Yeah, we've, we've done a bit of experimentation up there at my father's block. Um, but given the last two years, we haven't seen much result yeah, in anything. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, that's right. And maybe maybe there's still a lot of research to be done finding species. Like, you go back, we've got a lot of history of winter legumes looking for hard-seeded varieties that can persist over several droughts. And, and it's a big success story. Surely that same story could happen with summer um, summer active um, legumes, but I suspect there's only been a fraction of the amount of dollars spent looking for that answer that, compared to what the South has done. Yeah, no, that, that's probably about right. Um, and so, as you alluded to earlier, we, we went for a bit of a drive earlier and the Cerradella is just a nice thick mat on the ground. There's... Uh, subtropicals obviously not growing but the, the carryover feed's still there it's sort of up over the ute um, and I, I assume you're like the rest of us and last year you had the lowest rainfall year on record um, how have you managed to bounce back so well from that drought? Well I suppose we're, we're planning to do better if we get another drought like that like since then we've, we've invested in hay shed and it's full of not full, half full of tropical grass. We're investing in bores for better water supply. Um, 
I guess the way we've coped in the drought is because we've got pastures like tropical grasses that can respond to any, you know, even in a drought you tend to get the odd fall of rain here and there. And we've had a couple of cases where we probably bought in a bit early and then had to sell again, but we've made money at each step. I think tropical grasses respond so quickly that if you're running them well, you can probably, like for example, we restocked in February before prices really went mad because we had tropical grasses that gave us feed within two weeks, good feed within two weeks. And so we're more than, we've been more than fully stocked from March onwards. Um, and I guess that's that's basically it. We, we tend to trade, so we buy about 250 kilos and aim to sell them at 500. But if a drought evolves in the middle, there's, provided they're in good order, you can sell them at 350 or whatever. And I guess that's been our strategy. Yeah, it's a it's a solid one. I guess it's um like it's adaptable. You can you can suit it to whatever situation yeah, you're yeah. in. I mean, I don't want everyone to be a, a trader like that. I well, guess, no, if everyone's a trader, there's no breeders, and you all end up in trouble. And I guess <laughs> if we were a breeding business, um, our improved water supply will help us better grazing management in future, more conserve fodder, and. And sure, when you get a big drought, you've got to downsize to a degree, but uh, the better prepared you are, I guess, the less you have to downsize. Yeah, no, that's the way. Um, and so how long could you expect to get out of a standard subtropicals? Like you, you said earlier, hard-seeded legumes, they tend to go on indefinitely. Your, your subs are, a, well, they're a perennial grass. Well, um, we're, we've been, I've been in my DPI, Department of Ag days and consulting days, there are stands of tropical grasses in this district and others that are more than 30 years old. Oh, wow. And I don't see any decline in them, provided they're reasonably well managed. So I think we can more or less say the right species, and that's important, and sensible management, you've got a pasture that's indefinite in life. The same goes for Ceredella's subclovers. It stands well over 30 years old and... Um, as even what you've seen here today, they're probably twenty years old, and there's no sign of decline. Yeah, right. Eh? No, they they are fairly solid stands. Yep, yep. So, if you had to give you top five tips for setting up for a subtropical pasture, what would they be? Well, planning. I guess I don't think there's any more important. Whatever you're doing in agriculture, have a plan. You can always change it, and there's things that might upset it, but at least you know you're going forward. I've, I know people. 11 years ago, they haven't changed from there to now. You've seen this property go from no tropical grass to 50% tropical grass. And there's nothing magic about what we do, but we have a, have a plan and we aim to, to follow that through. So I, I think a plan, try and do things on time, go the right varieties, don't forget soil fertility, um, and sensible grazing management. You don't have to be any specific strat. I call it flexible rotational grazing for for um, perennials. Give, make sure they get a rest every now and then, allowed to head up for your winter legumes. Make sure they set seed at least some paddocks each year, so that you're not running down your soil seed reserves. Um, watch your phosphorus and sulphur, and I think. 
that probably covers it, Martin. Uh, that's good. You don't have to be one of my best friends and best farmers, left school at 14, and he's he's just turned his enterprise into... He started 31 years ago and he's bought up four or five neighbours and he's done it all out of tropical grasses, winter legumes and cattle. And I know the drought's been tough on him, but he's still still coping okay. That's uh, George Avendano yeah. at Bogabra, is it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. See him in the land a bit. <laughs> um, right, eh? well, yeah, I think we've covered off a fair bit there. Is there anything more you wanted to add? That's, that's probably it, Martin. Right, eh? well, um, thanks for coming on, Bob. And is anyone wanted to find out anything more or get in contact with you, what's the best way of going about it? Yep, yep. My email's in my land article most weeks, so more than happy to help out if, if people would like me to consult for them or you want to bring a group to come and have a look at tropical grasses or cerradella or whatever on our property you know that's what we do oh that's the way okay that's good thank you my pleasure once again i'd just like to thank bob for allowing me to interview him at his farm it was an absolute pleasure and it was brilliant to see the place see how he runs it and get a real feel for the whole process i'll be linking to some of bob's articles in the show notes below From there, you'll find his contact details should you have any questions for him.